Why would anybody publish art books when the industry is such a bitch? Today on Shtetl, artist and indie publisher Ian Sternthal gives us the scoop, plus lots of great tunes for International Women's Day. You can download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave from iTunes or at shtetlmontreal.com. Welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and tomorrow is International Women's Day, so we're going to play a lot of lady-centric music for you today, including the song that we're listening to right now. That's Carolina. I say that with a French accent because I have a terrible Hebrew accent, but that's Carolina. She's uh, an R&B musician from Israel and uh, a Shtetl favorite. And uh, I'm very happy to have this unique Montrealer in the studio with us today. Ian Sternthal splits his time between Montreal, New York, and Israel. His publishing company is called Sternthal Books, and they're launching a new book of photography called Hannah by Hagar Siegler tonight at Espace Pop on Park Avenue. Ian, thank you so much for coming on to Shtetl on the Shortwave. Thank you so much for having me. 
I wanted to start by asking you about your personal inspiration for getting into this business, because when I did the promotion for the show, the image that I used on the website at shtetlmontreal.com was a collage that you did when you were in high school. Can you tell me a bit about this collage? Sure. Um, I think it's also relevant because why why I'm doing what I'm doing today in terms of the publishing is very connected. Um, so when I was 17 or 18, I was a student at Bialik High School, Montreal, and I was gay. I was obviously in the closet. This was 1997, so it wasn't exactly, things were not as open as they might be today. Um, and I don't know why, for really no reason, I just started cutting up magazines. I was always really, like, really into art and pretty creative, but I didn't know what I was doing, but I started to reconf- cut, up, uh, cut out elements from different magazines, and then I would take photos. I, I was doing a lot of photography at the time, and I would cut up my photographs, and then I would piece them together, kind of creating like these film stills. But I think what was really interesting about them was that being a, having an experience of being like an invisible person or an inaudible person, which I think a lot of people have that experience. You don't have to be gay necessarily to, to know what that feels like, but um, representing myself and taking control by creating these images. The images are also, they're kind of like film stills in a way, and I'm usually in them, um, was a chance for me to kind of transform myself from a passive person into an active person, take control of my identity, and also articulate who I wanted to be as opposed to who I was at who, the time. So who were you at the time? Um, I think I was I was always very curious. I was pretty repressed. Um, I had a lot, there was a lot of things I was, there was a lot of things I wanted to be and do and say, but I was kind of silenced by the circumstances of my childhood. Now I have amazing parents, I should say, that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it wasn't that I had a horrible childhood, but just growing up gay in a very homophobic world, it was my way of, of making sense and almost of like, reconf- you know, taking the media that surrounds us, which also comes with their own lessons about who we should be and how we should behave, and literally cutting that up and reconfiguring to express something that was meaningful to me. So I think that that experience was really, you know, it's funny, Oprah. Oprah. Oprah, yeah. Hi, Oprah. <laughs> she, oh, yeah, Oprah, Oprah totally t- tunes into Shuttle on the short wave yeah, every show. listening. No, but Oprah talks a lot about, like, transformational experiences or moments you have in your life that kind of change the course of your life. And so this was really a very profound experience for me because it showed me how art could be used by, um, you know, unseen, unheard individuals to kind of take agency and participate in the construction of their identity. Um, And that opened up so many pathways for me, uh, which eventually led to opening this publishing company. Well, I'm just curious because I actually also went to the very same high school that you did, Bialik High School, which is a private Jewish school here in Montreal. And I thought because I'm older than you, um, I thought things had changed and that it was sort of like a more open, a progressively more and more open environment in terms of sexual orientation. I'm just curious. I should first preface by saying that I was in, this is also 1997. So Uh I think today, obviously, I don't know what this, I think today would be much more open. But I was sent to Selwyn House in grade seven which was the most traumatic experience for me. Why? My parents had this weird fantasy of us going to these, like, waspy, elitist <laughs> schools. <laughs> and um, at, at Selwyn, I mean, it was just very hard to be, like, it was, like, a super boy sports, alpha male, elitist environment. 
Um, I was miserable. It was extremely oppressive to anyone who did not fit in to that very, very narrow mold. A lot of kids were bullied. So even going to Bialik, I mean, the only reason I went to Bialik was I had to get out of Selenos. And Selenos is an all... Uh... Selenos is an all-boys school. I'm sure it's a great school for other people. For me, it just wasn't. Uh-huh. But I don't also had to had take issue with some of the values that I feel were promoted there. So going to Bialik, in a, even at that time, was like a much more inclusive, open environment. I found like, you know... There was all kinds of kids. The kids who were a bit nerdier weren't necessarily tortured or made fun of. Everyone kind of had their place. Hmm. So it was a much nicer environment. And you were creating these collages in your room and hiding them? Yes. I would make them. I think I started at the end of high school, but it was a process of like a year or a year and a half where I would, where I would, I was very, I was, I thought they were super cool from the beginning. I was excited to show my friends. Um, I would not show my family, so I don't know what they thought I was doing in my room, but like my mother would come <laughs> and I would quickly hide them. Um, they were very respectful though of my privacy. And nice. when I was ready to, I showed them. But the other thing is that when I, just to create a link between the, the reason I started this publishing company is I wrote a book called The Hula Project, which I have not yet published, but I'm actually going to have an exhibit in Tel Aviv at the Bait Barrel Gallery in March, opening, I think, March the 17th or the 18th, and the exhibit will be about that book. But that book was directly inspired by the, those collages because when I first moved to Israel in 2005, which was like a very open period for me, I was just exploring and feeling I was very free. Um, I started to look at like the s- images and symbols that prefigured Israel's actual existence, you know, like artists and writers imagining a new place and a new identity, which was also very connected to that generation of Eastern European Jews who were emancipated. Therefore, they were found themselves educated in secular arts or secular fields, but they weren't really admitted into non-Jewish society, nor did they really fit into the traditional Jewish society. So they kind of existed in a no man's land, and that was Herzl's generation. And there was a lot of um, artworks and fictional stories like Alta Neuland, which was published in 1902. So in the case of Israel as well, before these people were able to actually affect political change, in the realm, within the realms of their imagination, they imagined all kinds of characteristics of this new identity or new place, which actually conditioned the physical development of Israel. So I noticed a, a connection between my own experience as a disenfranchised, marginalized person and how I was able to use artwork in order to bring my voice into a public space and how Israel also came into being you know, like, for example, Alta Neuland was published in 1902. What is Alta Neuland? So Alta Neuland is a social utopian novel, which Theodore Herzl wrote. Uh-huh. He was super frustrated. He was trying to meet, like, the head of the Ottoman Empire. He was trying to get world leaders to listen. No one really would. Who was he but a journalist from, from Vienna? Um, and he channeled his frustrations into this social utopian novel where these two travelers leave Eastern Europe um, to flee society because society at that time is so corrupt and flawed and they're tired of it. And they stop in Palestine on their way to this unknown island and it's like this backwater, you know, really backwards, undeveloped place. And then they flee society for like 20 or 30 years and then they decide to go back and they stop in Palestine and all of a sudden it's been transformed into this futuristic metropolis where literally like buildings have kind of almost sprung from the ground and all of the social ills of Europe are solved in this perfect new society. Um, 
And so that book was translated into Hebrew, I think, in 1902. I think he wrote it in 1899. It was translated into several different languages. The Hebrew translation was called Tel Aviv. So when Tel Aviv was founded in 1909, it named itself after this book. Uh-huh. So again, we see the relationship between like f- images and fictions and fantasies and the enormous political power they, they eventually have once they're harnessed. So I, when I came to Israel and started learning more about how Israel came to be, um, I couldn't help but notice the analogy or the parallel between my own experience and how in terms of becoming mm-hmm. and how this the, the Israel because as a these, place became. These collages were sort of your way of imagining the person that you would be and taking images and cutting them up and creating an identity that you might become. And then you kind of did become that, right? In a way. So I don't know. So, yeah. And I mean, in a lot of the collages also, I'm screaming. I was angry. <laughs> You're angry. Yeah. yeah my, I mean, I went through definitely an angry period, which... Um, so that that's expressed frustration, anger, not wanting to really be silenced or be quiet, not wanting to follow social, you know, the social protocol, a lot of those emotions. I mean, just expressing that emotion and not being afraid to express it was very, was a very empowering experience. So in terms of giving me confidence and on many, many levels, I don't think I really also like I. I, I don't call myself an artist, but I do a lot. I do a lot of art, art projects. Um, and this was something that was really not premeditated. It just was totally honest. Like there's a field of art called outsider art. I don't know if you're familiar, but outsider artists are artists who are outside of the canon of what we consider art. And usually like they, um, they didn't necessarily study art. They were never necessarily recognized or exposed as artists they weren't playing that game which obviously today is a very complicated game for how artists become successful residencies and being included in shows and knowing the right curators so I feel what I was doing was very connected to outsider art (laughs) which is yeah very interesting love love talking to you Ian and we're going to hear more and talk more about Sternthal books and we're going to take a little break I had planned all this music this song is it's kind of it seems a little bit jarring with uh, the conversation we're having but actually I think it kind of fits because it's Sophie Tucker for president and uh, I wanted to play music for International Women's Day and Sophie Tucker I mean she was a very popular American artist a very gutsy woman and she has this song Sophie Tucker for president like in the 50s anyways we're coming up to elections in Quebec we've got a woman who's running and who is premier she should listen to this like Sophie is promising some awesome stuff if she's president so take a (laughs) listen (laughs) and we'll be back on Shtetl on the shortwave in a couple of minutes Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a gal who never wanted to mix into politics. But my country needs me now, cause it's in one awful fix. You men have been running the USA for years, you've had full sway. I think it's a crime and just about time that we women had our way. You men have ignored the women, you've always been unfair. What we need is a woman now in the presidential chair. I ran for president four years ago, but Mr. Truman got in. Like William Jennings Bryan, I keep on trying, and this time I'm going to win. My presidential boom is going to be big and strong, and from now on, you'll hear this campaign song. Sophie Tucker for president, your candidate for 1952. 
On the day that I'm elected, all you gals have been neglected will be furnished with a lover tried and true. You just vote for Sophie Tucker for president, and I guarantee a better deal for you. You women who have husbands who just go to bed and snore, I'll pass a law, I'll make them be as amorous as of yore. Like Dr. Pepper, they'll be good at 10 and at 2 and at 4. You vote for Sophie Tucker for president, your candidate for 1952. And here is my platform. When I'm elected, I will see to it that we women get our rights. We'll not only have better days, but more enjoyable nights. We've been getting the old one, too, from all of you politicians, when what we want is greater affection and better loving conditions. We now have government controls and all kinds of merchandise. When I get in, we're going to begin to put controls on all you guys. We'll put a control on every old wolf who's cheating on his spouse, and we'll freeze what he's got to cheat with before he leaves the house. And when it comes to the forgotten man, I'll go one better than Mr. Truman. I'll put every forgotten man with some forgotten woman. And if they need information on that popular indoor sport, instead of the congressional record, I'll send them the Kinsey Report. For the betterment of our widows, you can't beat the Tucker plan. In every closet, a new mink coat, and every boudoir man. You may get a widow's pension now, and may be all right. But what good is a pension on a cold and rainy night? What you women need is a guy like Clark Gable to call on you every night at nine with a big, long, kosher salami and a bottle of Manischewitz wine. He'll take care of your welfare in a manner you'll adore. And you can call up your psychiatrist and tell him you don't need him anymore. That's why I say we've got to have a woman in the White House. Women are doing everything today. We have women doctors. Hooray for the women doctors! We have women lawyers! Hooray for the women lawyers! We have women plumbers! Hooray for the women plumbers! In fact, there's very little difference between a man and a woman! Hooray for that little difference! Stop your heckling, please. Here is the most important issue. When it comes to the policy of foreign affairs, may I modestly say, I've had a couple of foreign affairs and I handled them okay. I'll take care of those Russian diplomats who do nothing but stall or disagree. Because when I get through with those guys, they'll have no strength to veto me. There's a big difference between war and peace, one fact you can't ignore. No man yet has ever said, I've just had a darn good war. So vote for Sophie Tucker for president. All right, we're back on Shtetl on the Shore Avon CKUT 90.3 FM. That was Sonia Kalish, better known as Sophie Tucker, and also known by her nickname, The Last of the Red Hot Mamas. And uh, she was a pretty provocative woman. In 1903, at the age of 16, she eloped with the beer cart driver named Lewis Tuck, and that's where she got her name. Uh, she grew up working at her parents' little restaurant, and and as a waitress on the side, she would sing to the to the customers, and that's how she got started with singing and show business. And she would say like, "Between my singing and the onions, there wasn't a dry eye in the house in her little in her parents' restaurant." And she became a huge a huge star. So Sophie Tucker for president, and uh, we're back with Ian Sternthal. Hi. Hi, and it's fun to have you on the show. Um, what do you think? Would you vote for Sophie Tucker? Totally. Really? I think she should come and replace Pauline Marois. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so you're not going to be voting for Pauline Marois? No. No? Definitely. No. No, okay. No. <laughs> All right. 
I wanted to start by asking you about some of your projects. Your description of Sternthal books and of the, of the works that you do is about politics and how art engages with politics and philosophy. And the last project that you did was Zalmania. Yeah. Would you tell me a bit about sure. that? I mean, before, just to preface what you said about the art and the politics. Mm -hmm. So I look at politics not just being politics in the traditional sense where we vote for an elected official. I think I'm more interested in identity politics and the politics that govern how we are represented and how we represent ourselves and that kind of thing. So um, it's a little bit, a little bit different, but um, the project that you were talking about, Zalmania, which in Hebrew is Salmania, which actually means photo house. Okay. Um, that's a project I've been working on for probably six or seven years. When I first moved to Israel in 2005, I accidentally stumbled upon this, like, you know, this small shop on Allenby Street where there was tons of black and white photos of, like, portraits and uh, pictures of the city through uh, in its early early years. And I just walked in out of curiosity. I met this woman named Miriam. She must have been 93. She was sitting squarely in the center of the shop and right away she was just such a character I mean I, I just walked in out of curiosity I was at the time working on the book The Hula Project so I was always looking for images and collecting images at that time I didn't really know what the final form would be I was just kind of like meeting people and collecting all these images and then eventually I sat with them and shaped it but she was such a character that I kept on coming back and she was like you know and the second I met her I thought this woman has to be videoed you know she was a total she's a total firecracker she passed away two years ago so I spent years filming her and talking to her and trying to negotiate with her because even for to get photos she was a really tough businesswoman and she was like wanted money and her time was valuable um but what was what was so special about her photoshop i mean there's over a million negatives they say they documented every major national event in israeli history but also at the time before people had cameras everyone and their brother would go there like for their wedding photos for their bar mitzvah photos photos like just to give to their girlfriend or their boyfriend um so it's a massive archive of photography at the time i was more interested in her um, and so I, over time, I shot over 30 hours of footage of us together, interviewing her about her life. Um, many famous people would also, every prime minister sat to have their photograph taken. So she has personal anecdotes and stories about all of these people. Um, and she just has an opinion about everything. I mean, at the age of 93, she just, I would, I would, I really love to hang out with her. Um, and eventually, as I you know, through the years, eventually I started a publishing company. And then I started at one point, I found a box with negatives in it. And the negatives were at the time, I had never looked into it. But they have over 20,000 negatives of people from famous people to regular people. And I started to look through them. And I was first captivated by the aesthetics of the images, you know, like photography nowadays, everyone in their iPhone kind of has lost like every photograph that Rudy Weisenstein shot. That was the husband of Miriam, who eventually was running the shop after he passed away was beautifully lit and also the outfits from the 60s and the 70s and the way people I think also for me because of my own interest in identity politics and representation when I saw the images of all of these regular people you you had you could really feel this was kind of their moment um and the po and I was really particularly interested in the posing um, and I started to go through it, and I love to go through and look at all of, discover all of these faces. So, so far I've scanned over 4,000 negatives, um, and I want to do a digital, for that project I want to do a digital ebook, which I have a short film that I'm going to edit about my experiences in the shop with her. 
Also, the shop is like a living archive because a lot of times people come back 50 years later looking for photos from their wedding day or people search for images of their grandparents. And she, until she passed away two years ago, she often would remember the people. Mm -hmm. So there was this really funny exchange. A lot of those exchanges I captured on, on film, very unique to Israel as well. I mean... The How way, so? I mean, there's no boundaries between people in Israel. Sometimes you wish there were more. But there's, um, the, yeah, people, people address each other as if they've known each other for a long time. And that comes with a lot of good aspects and also negative aspects. Because everyone's up in your business. Okay. All the time. Um, and so very quickly, normal exchanges in North America, which would be like, governed by a certain distance in terms of be careful what you say and how you speak there it's just whatever you feel kind of mm -hmm. so that was interesting and also because it was such a small country I mean photo studios were a phenomenon around the world there have been many projects done like the one I'm working on but um, what's interesting about Israel is that it was so it's such a small country especially during the 50s and the 60s and the 70s that you know whereas in Paris you would have a photo studio for the wealthy and the like this was everyone so hmm. you'd have prime ministers, but also just like regular people. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no real hierarchy okay. in a way, which also was reminiscent of Israel's early years, which sadly has changed a lot. How do you um, mean? Tel Aviv, like I started going there in 2005, and I can say confidently today it's a totally different city. How so? I think it's largely been transformed by, by money. You know, the high-tech boom in Israel, the insecurity of French Jews who are all of a sudden coming to Israel in droves and buying apartments, real estate speculation, the fact that the Israeli economy, especially during the housing, the financial crisis of 2008-2009, Israel weathered quite successfully. Also, the end of the intifada, just there's a lot of money in Israel, and it's, there's a lot of social cleavages and snobbism, which didn't exist as I remembered it. I mean, there's also, it's like you said, it's like the good with the bad. There's also a lot of you know, as opposed to Montreal, which I feel doesn't really change that much, Tel Aviv is transforming all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's even the, the face of the city, there's massive skyscrapers all over, which never really existed before. It's like a very recent phenomenon. Um, there's mega, a class of ultra wealthy people. Um, but it's like mostly what you hear about Israel is that it's very economically difficult for people to make it there. People can't really afford to live there or have a, a decent standard of living. And, and then you ask yourself, why is that? Because that's totally true. And both one is symptomatic of the other. It's this class of mega wealthy people like wealth is no longer equally concentrated whether it ever really was i'm not sure but now it's even much more exaggerated so you have most of the wealth concentrated in the hands of very very few and then no one else can afford anything um and you have entire buildings just purchased by wealthy foreigners who don't even live there and yet you have israelis who sacrifice three years of their life for the army and you know, I don't know of a country that asks as much of its citizens. I don't know of any other country that asks as much of its citizens and then is kind of letting them down and abandoning them at the same time. Hmm. Interesting. So a lot of your projects are uh, seem to be in Israel because I guess you split your time between there and Montreal and New York. Yeah. The, re the reason that they are. So th the thing is, now I'm working on t two new projects which are not with Israelis. Okay. So one of them is with Odili Donald Odita. He's a Nigerian-born American artist. Uh -huh. And I'm working in collaboration with Jack Shaneman Gallery to do a book and a digital book. 
Um, and I'm also working on a book with Adriana Varela and Ifeni Klaus, who are Brazilian and Swiss lesbian vi activists, video artists. So I think as you, as we go, as I go forward, it will be less focused on Israel. And the reason it was so focused on Israel, a Israel is a huge part of my life and in terms of my studies and what. Um, but also, I wrote the book. I wrote the Hula Project has the work of over 25 artists. And what happened with that book is I finished graduate school in New York. I was about to publish it. I was so excited that anyone wanted to publish my book that I didn't take the time properly to read the contract. Okay. Um, and this was with an Italian publishing company, Charter Books. Basically, they were going to have me purchase... I would have to pay for the printing of the first thousand copies. Now, when you make a book, the first copy can cost $8,000 because every subsequent copy gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So I was going to be responsible for the lion's share of the printing. And then they came back to me and they said it would cost 40,000 euros. Now this book has holograms, acetate. It's like not, it's a, it's a very special book. Um, but they wouldn't provide me with the breakdown of how much it would cost. I couldn't afford it. I felt very taken advantage of. I ended up suing them to get my money back, broke the contract, was determined to start my own company, both to publish my own work, but also to help other artists who found themselves being taken advantage of by this industry. Um, and so basically what happened is that I had told the artists who were in the book, the book isn't coming out, I'm opening a publishing company for other projects. So I think that's why initially it had a kind of Israeli character to it. Sternthal books. Sternthal a lot of the books. Yeah, a lot of the projects were the artists or from Israel. from Israel, because that's at the time also where you were spending some time. Yeah. When I talk to you about Israel, I find your perspective on it is really um, illuminating and different from most people that I speak to. So I, I want to talk to you about that. Mm -hmm. You were saying that you're doing something with Refugee Voice. Yeah. So basically what I'm interested in is political issues. And I'm interested in using publications or media in order to illuminate political or philosophical questions. Okay. Um, but the Refugee Voice is a newspaper in Israel which was started by Maya Fenig and a bunch of other Israelis in partnership with African refugees. Now Israel today in Tel Aviv alone there's something like 60,000 African refugees that live in the city's southern quarters. Israel has a lot of foreign workers after the Intifada ended, um, Palestinians could no longer work so there was entire industries that were left in need of labor. Israel brought Filipinos, Africans, Chinese. So some of them come were legally brought by Israel in order to fill that labor vacuum. But then the border with Egypt was open and a lot of refugees from Eritrea and Sudan would come through Egypt and cross over into Israel. Right. Now Israel is a country that I think unfortunately defines itself as a, as a Jewish state. Um, I think it's fine for Israel to have a Jewish character, but I think it's problematic in the sense that not everyone in Israel is Jewish. You have hundreds of thousands of Russian non-Jews. You have two million Arab Israelis. You have all kinds of different people. And because of the way the country defines itself, none of these people are really eligible for citizenship or none of them can. So Well, Arab Israelis are Israelis. Yes, so they, Arab yeah. Israelis do have. But and the point is, anyone who comes to Israel and wants and loves and wants to make it their home, unless you're Jewish, you pretty much can't. Right. Um, so... The refugee voice was something that was... Now, you have to understand also that the mood in Israel vis-a-vis in, -vis these African refugees is very, very intolerant. In terms of the rhetoric of politicians, the media, if there's any violent crimes that ha take place, of which they are the perpetrators, then it's front page of every newspaper. A year ago, there was riots in the south part of the city where people smashed their shops. I lived in that neighborhood, and I have firsthand 
inter knowledge and interaction with the residents. I mean, most of them are just regular people who, you know, want to provide for their families and seek a better life. Um, so basically, the Refugee Voice was started in order to tell these people's stories so that if there was, they're often the victims of horrible human rights abuses. Um, and often, because of their illegal status, they can't really pursue justice for themselves so or they're intimidated and afraid. So the Refugee Voice is designed in order to help them tell their stories and document things that are important things that are taking place, but also their legal status is always changing. You know, Israel is a democracy on many levels, but there's also, there's edicts issued by the municipality of Tel Aviv's the legal department, which isn't voted upon by anyone, which define and limit a lot of their rights, and it's constantly changing. There's a campaign to try to force them out by making their lives as unbearable as possible. So the, what, what would yeah. Sternthal Books, what would your um, collaboration be with Refugee Voice? So my interest, first of all, is to help them. They had um, printed four or five editions at a certain point. They had no more money. It was very expensive. They wanted to switch over to a digital publishing solution and also create a website with different features. So I want to help raise funds um, and be a partner in this new endeavor and maybe help with the design or the program or bring, bring, bringing what I know about you know making publications to work with them and Ultimately, you know, a lot of the times I work with artists, which is great and important, but I also feel that I want my publishing program to represent more social issues and even projects that go outside of the book form that involve work maybe more humanitarian um, or political activism. Okay. I want to hear more about some of the other projects because there are so many that you're involved with and the books are beautiful and it's actually unbelievable that you're managing to publish these books independently so congratulations on that Thank and you. i hope people will go to the to the pop-up shop yeah, tonight at Espace pop yeah um, it's also going to be the pop-up shop is tonight and tomorrow from nine to five okay cool yeah. and we're going to come back and talk more we're going to take a little break and uh listen to this uh, song by karina rose tomorrow night karina rose is going to be opening up for marissa nadler they're going to be at casa del popolo and so it seemed like a really a nice song to play for our uh, International Women's Day playlist. This is uh, Karina Rose. There is darkness, there is light.
to Statel on the short way on CKUT in Montreal. We're back on Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT. And uh, the song you heard before was by Karina Rose, who's going to be playing tomorrow night with Marissa Nadler at Casa del Popolo. And we're back with Ian Sternthal of Sternthal Books. And if you want to check out uh, any of the projects that we're talking about, and there are plenty and very provocative ones, um, you can go to sternthalbooks.com. And you can, if you're in Montreal, you can come see, uh, see all the stuff uh, in the flesh books in the flesh at the pop-up shop at Espace Pop tonight and tomorrow. So Ian, in addition to publishing all these art books, you also have a journal. Yeah. And so basically the journal for now just exists. It's um, online, but we're actually working now to create an, I want to start doing an annual kind of magazine. Mm-hmm. And the journal initially started off like, I don't know, it's kind of still finding its identity. Initially it was existed to supplement the book. So I would do interviews with artists or I would write texts about projects. And then sometimes I would, if there was a political issue or question, um, I look at it as like news that's not current events and more cultural news so if you go on there there's a lot of really cool stuff there's I have an interview with David Grossman that a friend of mine did um it was an amazing interview you can hear like the podcast and then I also have an online store again which exists to support our publication so if I work with an artist who's done other books I'll put them on but I'm also expanding and eventually I would love to have a space okay which would bring everything together Everybody wants a space. What about the pop-up? The pop-up is good. Pop-ups are so much work, I can't even tell you, and they are ephemeral, <laughs> so they you're doing all this work, you're like, it's probably easier just to open a store. Okay. <laughs> it's like all this work for two days, so people, if you're listening, come out. And we're also, I should also mention the pop-up, we're, we're going to have tons of cool books. We're launching the, the Hannah book by Hagar Siegler, which is also really interesting. I'm just going to speak for two seconds about it. Basically, she found in the garbage all these images Uh, like a person's entire lifetime of photographs and within them she found about 80 images of this woman standing in different outfits like before blogs and Instagram always in the same spot in her house in these funny 80s and 70s outfits and she ended up tracking down based on information from the photos the home of the woman and discovered that Hannah was she was actually this is the book that you're launching tomorrow night Hannah so Hannah was so so the book consists of all these images she tracked her down and she found out that she was a righteous Gentile actually she hit a Jewish man during the Second World War and that they eventually fell in love and moved to Israel. They were unable to have kids, which is why the photos didn't go to anyone. But she was very well-loved in her neighborhood, and Hagar met a lot of the neighbors and was able to kind of paint a portrait of who this woman was. The other thing I want to mention is just in terms of what we were talking about in Israel and being being kind of a, a, 
a critic in a sense of things that are happening. I think Israel is an amazing place on many levels, I also want to say, and a very inspiring place. One of the most inspiring parts is that civil society is very strong. There's a lot of grassroots initiatives to make things better, and people are very, in a way, at least in Tel Aviv, politically awake. But I mean, I, I'm just as critical in a sense of what's happening in Montreal. Um, the political issues that are happening. And I also think it's interesting to note that being Anglophone in Montreal and being Jewish in Israel, I think it's, they're kind of like being on flip sides of the same coin. How so? In a way. Because I feel like there's a lot of parallels between is- Israeli Zionist nationalism and French-Canadian nationalism in terms of both groups see themselves as these like small minorities surrounded by a sea of Arabs or a sea of Anglophones. And they per- they justify very aggressive measures which are designed, quote-unquote, to protect their culture, but which in fact are serving to eradicate other cultures around them. Mm-hmm. And both rely on very questionable mythologies and so I just, I feel like when I'm in being, living in both places gives me a different perspective on each place. Hmm. You know, I want to do a book about Montreal. Like we spoke about the Hula Project and that's based on this um, philosophy of doing, uh, this idea of doing philosophy with images, which was developed by Walter Benjamin, who did the art, who wrote the Arcades Project. Um, and I would like to do a book about Montreal, the linguistic cleansing of Montreal, which would look at this program over the last 30 years to totally destroy our community. I mean, institutions are underfunded. Immigration is nearly impossible if you don't have a certain level of French economic opportunity or lack of economic opportunity. Like, my community is leaving in a massive way. And, um, you know, my grandfather used to, my grandfather, Mervyn Gittleson, who wrote a book called The Ordinary Life of an Average Canadian Citizen, which was a collection of his writings, would write these angry political letters to the Gazette and they never would publish them. So I would like to publish those letters. Um, and So you're making a parallel basically between the way Quebec uses nationalism against minorities here and the way Israel uses their nationalism against the minorities within within Israel yeah, and surrounding. But also just their, the, 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 I guess the nationalisms of both places are very similar and also very commonly, very widely embraced. Um, you know, I find in Montreal, like my my feeling, my philosophy, my view is that wherever you're born is your place. No one has a right to tell you what language you have to speak, how you should dress, how you should look. Uh, We all have a right to our space and to claiming our own space. I think it's a very important concept that um, is really under attack in Quebec today. And, you know, in Israel to a certain extent and obviously in different contexts and ways. But I feel like an Arab person who's born in Israel has just as much of a right to be there as just as much Israeli, whether or not Israel's flag or anthem incorporates that person. I think it should. You know, and I also feel the same here. I think I would be hypocritical if I argued for Jewish, Anglophone, multicultural rights here, but then, you know, in, in the context in Israel, just turned a blind eye to a lot of very disturbing things that take place. I should mention we live in a very conservative community, Jewish community in Montreal, um, where a lot of times questioning Israel is very taboo and people are reluctant to do so. And I think it's important everywhere to speak out against injustice wherever you see it. 
Okay, apparently we're we're going off the air now. They've the cut. No, they haven't. Oh, <laughs> I'm just joking. No, say? Ian, I'm joking. Oh. I'm just joking. Um, so, okay, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I wasn't expecting you to say all that, but thanks a lot for sharing your perspective. That's yeah. interesting. Um, I want to ask you, I'm curious about this project, the, um, yeah. about the artists in Brazil. It's called Cracks in Civilized Landscapes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So that's kind of in keeping with my anarchistic tendencies or my belief that we should all have freedom them over our bodies and our lives and our spaces. That's a project done by Adriana Varela and Fanny Klaus, they're two lesbian, it's a lesbian couple. And basically what they do is they've, for the past two years, and this is a little controversial, I'm almost afraid to say, but they go into um, architectural spaces that they feel denigrate women or impose certain code of behavior, modest stress, um, banks, museums, and they have sex in the spaces and they document it. And they create this very actually beautiful film um, which incorporates their breathing and spoken word over the spaces like the Eiffel Tower. Um, and in, in a weird, I mean, to speak about what they do, are they really fighting for freedom over space? Does it really have a political effect? I'm not really sure, but I think it's, a, it's a, also a very interesting documentation of their own relationship. So the book will include their writings between them, um, images of the, the, many things that they've made, as well as photographs from the film. And people can watch like a clip of them on the website. Yes. I shared it on uh, on the post for today's show, so people can also click there and watch the Vimeo. And they're pretty interesting out there yeah. um, characters. She's I, I, also an amazing woman. I mean, just as a person. Yeah. 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 It's. I, I would. I would definitely recommend checking out this video just to see what they're up to. Uh huh. One more thing. I want to say. I have a new book coming out in like <laughs> two months with Karen Benbenisti. She's an artist from Tel Aviv. And in Paris. Um, another beautiful project. She does a deconstruction of an existing book and she draws by erasing. So she actually removes the ink um, and she takes a book that documents porcelains from the Far East and kind of it's a little bit about creating new images of the Orient and complicating our one dimensional perspectives. Hmm, interesting. Guess I'm curious to understand how it works. Like, so you you meet these artists and you're interested in in creating a book about their work. How do you get the funding to do this? Uh, how does it end up into these like very specialized, expensive looking, beautiful art book? Yeah, you forgot to mention the, how they use and abuse me throughout the process. It's like <laughs> that's imp uh, but no. I mean, every book is its own system. I, like you said, you said in the beginning, indie publisher. I don't like the word because I aspire to be much bigger than an indie publisher eventually but every book is funded differently like the Zalmania project we put on Kickstarter which we had a really successful campaign we exceeded our goal which was really exciting um, sat like the Rothfeld collection was funded by the Donald Rothfeld the collector and the American University Museum American University in Washington which has a museum which put on the show well what about these Brazilian artists so Wait. that I don't know how it will be funded for example and that will be a project that will be more difficult to fund because it's it's controversial to probably would be controversial and offensive to a certain amount of people so you know for me I just go forward I just I'm I start to I'm starting to work on it um and then at, at the point where I have a finished design PDF file then I can look into different options either crowdfunding grants maybe I would invest some of my own money she would invest some of her money kind of is it's open 
a lot of the books that you publish and the artists that you're working with are controversial, like the ones you just mentioned. They talk about anarchy. They talk about transgender issues. They have sex in banks and mosques. <laughs> There's the portraits without pants. There's the Hula Project. Your book is also controversial as well. Why is it that you're not afraid especially since you do come from uh, a community that is somewhat conservative. Why is it that you don't feel afraid to put all these uh, views and, and like politically radical and sexually explicit material out there and, and get it fun, like do crowdsource funding from like the community? Like, how come you're not afraid? I think the first thing to mention, as a kid, I was very influenced by Madonna as a young kid growing up, <laughs> okay. okay? So when Madonna in the early 80s moved to New York and she was like struggling, she was a naked model for art classes. And when she made it, those images were published in Penthouse, I believe, and she was totally unapologetic. I feel it's really important to be a critic not me personally, but people in general, and to ask questions. Maybe it's possible that I've always kind of liked negative attention as a young kid. I've never wanted to be like everyone else. Those are things I don't know how to answer. It could be because of my sexuality or from a young age, knowing that I don't fit in and I am an outsider in a lot of ways. So I kind of embrace that role um, and enjoy provoking, I guess. And not only enjoy, I mean, I, I can't lie, I do enjoy being provocative and aspire in a way to be provocative, but I also think it's, it's socially and culturally important that we ask these questions. I don't know. But do you see the people around you, like, asking these questions or understanding what you're trying to do? Do you have, how do people react to, to the work that you're publishing and producing? People are, you know, people have different reactions. Uh -huh. um, you know, obviously my family is, my parents are quite traditional and my family is a little bit more conservative, but they're also very open-minded people. Um, you know, it's more interesting and I think more important to speak to the people who are not in agreement with you and who are <clears throat> closed off. I also should mention that You know, when I was young, I had a very transformational experience. When I, Another one, when I was 17, I met Mona Hatoum, a Palestinian artist, At, at a museum in Scotland. And her early works were very political and they were very didactic in a way. And they would really shut, alienate people who didn't agree with her perspective. But in her later work, she started playing with the five senses using heat and cages and things to inspire feelings, to give us a, a feeling of what it is to be confined, to feeling what it is to feel afraid. And then you, I couldn't close myself off to her narrative. That was a fascinating experience because the, my whole understanding of the world was called into question and I learned so much from that. Um, so I maybe also could have to do with the fact that some of my richest experiences have come from being challenged myself. Okay, that pretty much takes us to the end of Shtetl on the shortwave today. Did you want to dedicate a song? Yes, I want to dedicate a song. One of my best friends, Andrea Board, is getting married this weekend, so I want to dedicate this song to her. Um, I wish her all the best and Kenny Kobe. So, and thanks to everyone for listening. Hope you guys all come out to the pop-up shop. We're going to have amazing books from tons of indie publishers and art editions, affordable art prints. Come by and check it out. We're going to have a party tonight from 7 to 10. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Ian Sternthal. And Thank we're going to dedicate this song to your friend. It's the matriarch of Israeli rock, like one of the first women to like really be... So appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> to really be in the rock and roll scene in Israel. It's from the 80s. Her name is Corinne Alal. This is going to be our, our last song on the International Women's Day playlist, and I hope you'll tune in to the next episode of Shtetl on the Shortwave. You can read and find out more at shtetlmontreal.com. 